and just strengthen him as he leads the congregation um, through kind of tough times. So be with us all and help us to be joyful, to keep our eyes focused on you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Marcus. And again, good morning, everybody. So glad you're here today. Can you think of the time that you were at your absolute thirstiest? When you were so thirsty, you'd wondered if you were going to make it. I remember when I was a little kid, I used to go to a playground, a little bit of, a little ways from my house, and I would get so caught up in what I was doing and playing and playing and playing that our neighbors, who uh, were good friends with my parents, I was always going and knocking on their door asking if I could get a drink. I did this so much, they finally bought me this thermos to carry around with me so I wasn't knocking on the door all the time. But I wasn't nearly as thirsty as a man by the name of Lag Lag. And he was an Algerian. He wrote a book called Sahara Unveiled. And it was his story of being stranded in the Sahara. He was with a friend and they were driving across the Sahara and their truck broke down. And they knew they would be doomed if they didn't do something. What they ended up doing was digging a trench under their truck and they would go and they would lay in that trench during the day to hopefully keep the sun off them for a little while so they wouldn't get too dehydrated in the process of trying to survive. Day after day, they would lay there hoping that someone would show up. They had food, but they wouldn't eat it. They, was, they were afraid it would magnify their thirst. Dehydration, as it turns out, not starvation, is what kills people whenever they're in the desert. And it's considered one of the most terrible of human sufferings. Physiologists will use a series of Greek words to describe the nature of dehydration when it happens. The first stage, which is what Laglag would have experienced first, was called eudipsia. It was just ordinary thirst. Then there would be bouts of hyperdipsia, which is temporary intense thirst, followed by polydipsia, which is a sustained excessive thirst. And when you hit that phase, they'll say that you will drink absolutely anything that you can get your hands on. As a matter of fact, it leads to something called uroposia and hemoposia, when a person will actually drink their own urine or their own blood in order to survive. These two men in the desert finally resorted to drinking rusty radiator water. So in order to survive, they were actually willing to drink, in effect, what was poison. This physical thirst also exemplifies something that happens to people spiritually. People will become spiritually so thirsty that they will drink just about anything. It may be money or sex or power in order to satisfy a deep longing and craving they have to be loved and needed and important. And you may think, well, I don't struggle with those things, Chad. But how much do you look at your, your investments as opposed to the Word of God? How often do you maybe turn to porn instead of turning to Christ? How often do you fill in the blank? Have to surround yourself with what you feel like are important people or cool people in order to have this feeling of significance that you are somebody. 
because all of this is poison that you can drink to quench a thirst that only Christ can. The question I want to talk about this morning is, how can we quench spiritual thirst? In the passage, we'll see Jesus reveals himself as the source of what he calls living water that will ultimately quench the spiritual thirst we're talking about. The text will be from John chapter 7. We'll start with verse 37 and read through verse 52. John 7 verses 37 through 52. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 7 verses 37 through 52. On the last day of the feast, the greatest day, Jesus stood up and shouted out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And let the one who believes in me drink. Just as the scripture says, from within him will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were going to receive. For the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the crowd began to say, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But still others said, no, for the Christ doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Don't the scriptures say that the Christ is a descendant of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? So there was a division in the crowd because of Jesus. Some of them were wanting to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Then the officers returned to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why didn't you bring him back with you? The officers replied, No one ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered, You haven't been deceived too, have you? None of the rulers of the Pharisees have believed in him, have they? But this rabble who do not know the law are accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before and who was one of the rulers, said, Our law doesn't condemn a man unless it first hears from him and learns what he is doing, does it? They replied, You aren't from Galilee too, are you? Investigate carefully and you will see that no prophet comes from Galilee. You may be seated. We're continuing on this morning through the book of John, seeing Jesus as our one and only living hope. John wrote his book in about A.D. 90, sometime after Jesus had already ascended. And John himself is putting together the pieces of what he had just encountered with Christ. Remember, at the time of these experiences, none of them had been filled with the Holy Spirit, yet the Holy Spirit had not yet come. And as the Holy Spirit came, he's recalling everything that happened. He's putting together the pieces and he's writing it all down. And he gave us the book of John. And all through this book, we see the reactions to Christ. Some believing, some not. Among the other the unbelievers were some very powerful Jews called the Pharisees, experts in the law, the chief priests, some of the most powerful in Jewish culture. We also see their increasing hostility. And this morning we'll walk through this passage and we'll look at this promise of life that Jesus gives and how we get our spiritual thirst quenched. And we'll see that belief brings life. We'll see that disbelief, it brings confusion, it brings deception, ultimately it brings death. And then finally we'll talk about how can I reveal life, the flowing water that Christ said is coming out of the heart of the one who believes in him. 
So then last week we looked at the second day of Jesus' teaching at this Feast of Tabernacles. It was a feast that had gone on for a long time in Jewish culture. Looking way back at the Exodus, those 40 years where God faithfully provided for the Jews. They had a tabernacle. They would roll it up and take it with them from place to place. They lived in booths, these like little huts that they would build out of branches. And God gave them food and he gave them drink while they were out in the wilderness, wandering. That's what this feast is commemorating. And Jesus now stands up and speaks. And, but the, the crowds always had trouble with who he said he was. There was misunderstandings about his place of origin. Jesus says, look, I come from heaven. They couldn't hardly buy that. They thought that perhaps the Messiah that was to come was of unknown origin. They had not really studied the Old Testament. They didn't understand the prophecies. But their greatest problem was they just didn't believe that he was who he says he was. Now on this last day of the feast, Jesus begins, he's giving hints to the Holy Spirit. Now to understand what's happening in this passage, you're going to have to understand what happened on this day. This most important, greatest day of the feast. Look at what is said in verses 37 and 38 one more time. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, And if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as a scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So what happened on this greatest day of the feast? This is actually day seven of the feast. Day eight was like the closing ceremony, sort of like the Olympics had their closing ceremonies. But this day was considered the greatest day. So I'm going to walk you through this feast for a moment because there's a whole lot going on here that the original audience would have understood that we do not unless we take a moment and understand what was happening on this day of the feast. So each day of the feast, there was a group that would travel. And they, every morning, they would start up here at the temple and they would make their way down through the city and they would go through a gate. This was called the water gate. They would go through that gate and they would go down to the Gihon Spring. And this was an important water source to the people. It had always been, since they discovered it, extremely important. They considered this God's provision to them. It was a, a water source in a place that was pretty arid. But there was a spring right there at the edge of their city that they believed God had provided. At one time, King uh, Hezekiah built a tunnel out to this spring so they'd have water access. But so important was it, they even built these, these guard towers around it. It was like part of the wall. The ruins are still there today. So they would travel down to this spring. And there what would happen is the, the priest would take a gold pitcher and he would fill it from the spring. And while he's doing it, this is a party. This was a celebration of God's blessing to provide them with water when they needed it most. So they made their way down, not just the priests, but people blowing horns. And they were, they were chanting. They were chanting Isaiah 12, 3, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Some of the people would drink from the pool. Others would chant Isaiah 55, 1 and 12, 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. This was a, an amazingly joyous occasion. It still is. They still practice this. 
So all this is going on, and uh, one uh, rabbi had written this about this day, that he that never has seen the joy of the water drawing has never in his life seen joy. I mean, that's how happy these people were to be together doing this. We can learn so much from the strong sense of community that these Jews have with each other, celebrating the goodness of God. They've done this for centuries. Every day of this seven-day feast, they would do this. And then they would all walk back up the hill together. So this you get a little better idea. They'd start down here at these springs, and they'd make their way all the way back up, up these paths, up through the city, and back up to the temple. There was another water gate, as a matter of fact, on the side of the temple they would walk through, and they would all do it together. And the crowds were with them. The crowds were carrying two things. In one hand, they would carry what looks like a lemon. It was a piece of uh, citrus fruit. And uh, it was called a, an ethrog. It was reminiscent of the harvest. In the other hand, they would carry what was called a lulab. It was a, a tree branch. And that fruit was reminiscent of God's provision of food when they were wandering. Those branches were reminiscent of God providing them shelter. That's what they would build the booths out of. And then the crowd would follow the priests, shaking these all the way. Chanting and shaking and following the priests all the way up back to the altar. The priests would climb the altar steps, pour the water on the altar while the crowd encircled him, all singing. Now, this was so, this is what's so important about that seventh day is on the seventh day, they did this seven times. So they would spend hours doing this seven times, going to the pool, coming back, going to the pool, coming back. And this was rich in symbolism. On the one hand, it was a, a plea to God for rain, for the, the harvest. And Judaism saw this water ceremony on different levels. On the one hand, it was symbolic, too. On the, in the desert, they recalled that God brought water from a rock. When they were thirsty, when they thought they were going to die of dehydration, and they started grumbling, God brought water out of a rock. And here water was flowing from the altar in the temple. As the priest would pour out that gold pitcher, it would overflow the cup and it would overflow the altar. So the symbology was there. Then if you go in the Old Testament, Zechariah and Ezekiel had these visions of water flowing from the temple, this spectacular vision of life-giving water flowing from God's temple. So all this is going on, the fanfare and the chanting, and they've done this for centuries and centuries. And on that seventh day, somebody did something that no one had ever done in the hundreds and hundreds of years that this had gone on. Jesus himself stands up. And he reveals himself as the living water. All of this that you've been doing for so long is fulfilled by my being here. On that end of that seventh procession when they were tired, but they've been doing this, they've been celebrating, he makes that pronouncement. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Wow. This was huge. 
The people didn't necessarily have a category for this. They had a lot of pieces they were going to have to put together here. What does this mean? He did something similarly during Passover. He said, I am the bread of life. This Passover feast was pointing to me. Now he does it again with this feast. I am the water. I'm the living water. They needed rainfall, and, and water ceremonies led to memories of miraculous desert water. And Jesus says, I am the source of the water of life. So these ceremonies, again, uh, were related in Jewish thought both to God's provision of water in the desert and now the Lord pouring out his spirit in the last days. Jesus says the last days are starting right now. Pouring at this feast symbolically to the messianic age when the Holy Spirit would pour out on the whole earth. So Jesus... Here we have it. Jesus, the Messiah, is saying that day has come. And then in verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now look at what John does in verse 39. Jesus would make these obscure statements. He stood in the temple and said, this is going to be torn down and raised up again. But then John explained Jesus was talking about his own body, not the physical temple itself, although it would be torn down in 70 A.D. And now he does it again. He explains what it was Jesus had just spoke of in verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Spirit wouldn't come until Jesus went back to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit. John will be very explicit about this in the chapters to come. But Jesus reveals he's the one to whom the feast and the festivals were about. I'm the living water. In the previous chapter, he had talked about leaving. Now he's giving the first glimpses of the coming of the Holy Spirit, and it starts with belief in Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the feasts. Now, what does this mean for believers? Because you and I have this incredible blessing that these people didn't. And, and you and I are receiving, if we put our trust in Christ, we're receiving this ministry of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, I was reading something about the Holy Spirit last night. J.I. Packer, he described the Holy Spirit as being shy. Now, that was interesting. I'd never heard that before. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit would be to point to Christ and the ministry that Christ would be continuing even after he departed. Out of our hearts will flow these rivers of living water. Now that is speaking, when it says heart, it's actually talking about the belly, that part of us that is never fully satisfied. It's always craving something. And we get to bring life to people. We're not the source, but it pours out of us. One man, Arthur Pink, said the believer should not be like a sponge taking in but not giving out, but like a spring ever fresh and giving forth. I've kind of crassly heard this referred to as spiritual constipation. If we're always taking in and never giving out, we get to bring life to people. The Apostle Paul is going to talk about the spiritual gifts that we're given to bless others with. We get to share the work of God. And Christ sent the Spirit to minister to us and through us to share the gospel and all that Jesus taught. And we have access 
simply by believing that Jesus is who he says he was. To see Christ brought life. He poured out to the Spirit. The Spirit pours life out to us, and we get to be channels through which life is given to others. So then what does disbelief bring? Nothing good, okay? There's a, there's a hint. What does rejection of Christ bring? And we read down through verse 52, the reactions to Jesus' offer of living water. And some thought he was the promised prophet. Others asked if he was in fact the Christ. They struggled with him coming to them from Galilee, even though he was born in Bethlehem. And divisions are coming among the people. And, and some want him arrested, but as the text says, no one laid a hand on him. And in the crowd itself, there were these these officers operating under the direction of the chief priests who were Pharisees. And the Pharisees said, well, why didn't you just arrest him and, and bring him in? Well, they said in verse 46, no one ever spoke like this man did. Now, these officers, they weren't thugs. They were fellow Jews. And you can tell by the speech they're using, they are just as torn up as the rest of the crowd figuring out who is this man who can speak this way? Who has redefined in the centuries that we have partaken in this feast the way this man has? They were right. Because no man, no man had ever spoken like God. Then the Pharisees respond in verse 47. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? And then look at how they speak down to the people there. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. In the New English translation that I read earlier, they actually called them rabble. They don't get it. This is the reaction of a hard and unbelieving heart. They imply that none of the leaders believed in Jesus, but that's not true. There was one that was showing signs of belief. This man, Nicodemus, takes a step in just the right direction. And he calls these mighty Pharisees, these experts in the law, these powerful Jewish men on the carpet. In verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, referring to Christ, and he was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? It took a lot of courage. To stand up to his powerful peers, they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. You see, the Pharisees are drunk on their own sense of importance. They're drunk on their, their, the pride of their knowledge, their religiosity, and how good they are. These loyal followers of God, they thought, are blind to their own lostness. You know, sometimes we are never more dangerous than when we think we're right. We're never more dangerous when we don't understand our own lostness. I remember whenever I was in seminary and uh, I was going to my apartment, I was fortunate that I didn't get shot. I was uh, going up in the elevator and I got off on the wrong floor. But see, every single floor in, in seminary housing looked exactly alike. I went up to what I thought was the door of my apartment. I tried to get in, but the key didn't work. I thought, well, what is, what, what is, what's my wife done to me? She's, she's got the lock changes. I don't know what's going on here. So I got my buddy lived right across the hall. At least I thought he, this was his apartment. 
and I knock, and this, this other guy answered who I happened to know, and I said, oh, where's Anthony? And I just walked right in. I thought, oh, it must be a party. Well, it wasn't. Now, fortunately, this guy knew me, and he knew exactly what had happened. So this Because I'm in this apartment looking around, and I'm like, well, this doesn't look like Anthony's apartment. And then I thought, uh-oh. And I turn around, he's laughing. But I was totally lost, and I didn't even know it. I was even kind of, I was a little disoriented and dizzy at the time because I thought, well, I'm, I'm not at all where I thought I was. See, there's always this danger among those of us who are learning more and more about God that we don't see the Pharisee in us. And I've told people before, when I got out of seminary, I was like a monkey with a blowtorch. I thought I knew everything. I was dangerous. I didn't think anybody, you know, the layperson couldn't know what I knew. And I'm just, what I'm thankful for is I, I at least shut up as much as I did. If we ever become prideful about what we know, we are, we are impinging on lostness. We always have to have a spirit of humility. It's painful how wrong I still am at times. These Pharisees are dangerous. That's what lostness does. We have a whole world out there lost, looking for something to drink. They're parched. They're practically cannibalizing themselves to get their spiritual thirst quenched because they don't know where to go. We are to reveal life to them. How do we do that? I mentioned three ways. These are pretty apparent. First of all, believe. We believe. It's not like, though, it's, this, is, this is not a one-time thing. We put our faith in Christ. We hear the gospel. We understand we're a sinner. So we believe. We trust that Jesus is who he says he is. But then faith is like this muscle that we have to keep on exercising. We keep on working. I like what one reformer said. This was John Calvin. He said, the principal work of the Spirit is faith. The principal exercise of faith is prayer. If you're not praying, you are not exercising faith. If you're not praying, you can anticipate being a more worried and fearful person of what's to come. We have access to God by means of the Holy Spirit. There was a French film that was made uh, about townspeople in a small province. Actually, it was a village called Provence, France, uh, in, in France. And people conspired against a local landowner named Jean. He just inherited this plot of land. And they want to force Jean's little farm to fail so they can possess the land. So the land only gets a little bit of rainfall, so they sneak onto his property. They plug up a healthy stream. They actually cement it shut, and they cover it with dirt. Jean doesn't know about the nearby spring. As a matter of fact, he only knows of a place that's over a mile away. So he makes the hike, getting the water, dragging it back from a mile away. It ends up being a back-breaking experience. And sadly, he never discovered that he already had this inexhaustible water supply right there on his own property. Because, see, we can do that sometimes. 
that we forget of an inexhaustible supply of power, the Holy Spirit living within us. And we can be like Jean in this film. We spend our lives in backbreaking effort to try and haul in another supply. This is what happens in the absence of prayer in the life of the believer. We exert ourselves and we'll worry ourselves, trying to carry loads God does not intend us to carry. And if you're missing prayer, you are missing the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. So we believe, and then you don't keep the water to yourself, you share. You share, you share Christ. And this is part of the interaction we have with those who don't believe. We love them, and we tell them about Christ. And I almost never feel as fully alive as I do when I get to preach and share the gospel with somebody. There's people who will believe if you tell them about the gospel. We had a young man that just put his faith in Christ after the first service last week. It still happens. The Holy Spirit is still working. And as you do it, you'll gain more confidence and you'll gain more courage and you'll gain what my friend Shane Rossi calls gospel fluency. You get out there and you speak it and you, you're courageous, not because you may feel courageous, because you choose to be courageous. I'll never forget some missionaries uh, that came to our church a few months back. And for after years of ministry in a, in a rural setting, uh, they'd really seen no converts whatsoever. And I'll never forget a comment that she made. She said, we are called to be faithful to the proclamation. That's it. She said, if there were hundreds of people trusting Christ, we wouldn't take credit for it. She said, so we don't get discouraged by the results. They belong to God. Wow. If we could just understand that. It's not our job to make anybody believe. We don't have to engage in arguments. It's just our job to share the truth. And God takes care of the rest. Don't get discouraged by the results. They belong to God. And then finally, be truthfully loving and lovingly truthful. Be truthfully loving and lovingly truthful. This is how we interact with our fellow believers. We encourage, we love each other, and we're honest. And we admonish. This too brings life in the Spirit. It's not always comfortable speaking truth to somebody. But you know what? If they love and trust you and they know that you love and trust them, that is really the foundation. That is something the Holy Spirit establishes in churches. Unfortunately, too often in churches we shoot our wounded, don't we? We worship in spirit and truth. And that's both the heart and the head. We encourage each other with both our hearts and our heads. We love people that are around us. Our brothers and sisters here in the room today. There was an interesting statistic that came about uh, one of the Golden State Warriors. He's a starting guard. Steph Curry, you may know him. And the Wall Street Journal did a study uh, looking at all of Curry's 337 free throws during the course of the NBA season. They determined that when he was not wearing his mouth guard, he shot 198 for 214. That's 92.5% shooting average. It's, it's really good. With his mouth guard in, he shot 110 for 123. That's 89.4%. It's not bad. 
But there was a substantial difference in his free throw accuracy. And when hearing these stats, the general manager commented, maybe we should communicate that to him. In other words, does he have any idea that it makes a difference if he's got his mouth guard in or it's out? And how many times do we need input from our friends about things that are obvious to them that we don't even see? How many times do we need to speak the truth and love in the context of a loving friendship? So putting this all together, share in the life-giving ministry of the Holy Spirit. We get to be part of the life-giving ministry of the Holy Spirit. In His love, He uses us in the ministry that happens here on earth. I want to close with uh, this image. If you're familiar with Death Valley, or has anybody been to Death Valley? We're not... Okay, good many of you have been to Death Valley. You'll know that it's a really arid place. It's like a kind of a desert wasteland. However, every now and then there's a, a deluge of rain and water. This happened back in 2016. That caused what they call a super bloom. And when that happens, the place just gets covered in all these wildflowers. The park ranger says the timing only works about once a decade. Death Valley really goes from being a valley of death to being a valley of life. And the desert bursting with all that color, it's a wonderful visual of how Christ has taken our sinful and parched and dry lives and he breathed life into them. And he waters it through the power of the Holy Spirit. The difference between us and this, this super bloom doesn't last forever. It only lasts for a season. But new life in Christ will last forever. Just like we find death in disbelief and eternal separation from God, we find life in Christ. Eternal life for the believer will go on and live eternally with God in heaven. Please pray with me. Almighty God, we thank you for being alive and active in our lives. Lord, for coming in and saving us. We thank you for the ministry we're now receiving from you, Holy Spirit. We, we acknowledge there's mystery to the work that you do, helping us to learn about Christ, pointing to Christ, helping us to point others to Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your death on the cross. We thank you for your resurrection and I pray that now as we undergo this act of communion that would help us to remember in a special way the way that you commanded us to remember you. We ask it in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, as the men assemble and come down, you can come down, guys. Uh, just wanted to take a moment to prepare us for communion, and as we do, this is a time of both great symbolism and celebration, and makes me think about how many events in our life that are both symbolic and celebratory, so much so that they uh, lose their original intent, and so think with me even about uh, the message this morning. Great symbolism in the water carrying, great celebration 
to the point that they didn't recognize Christ when he was there before, before them declaring himself as such. In our own life, we have similar things. We have uh, Christmas, Easter, Fourth of July, Memorial Day. These things are great symbols and celebrations and so much so that we often forget the original intent of that. And so this morning, before we take communion, I wanted to briefly bring us back to the original intent. And if you, if you come to Wednesday night here at the church, you'll know that I like words, and I enjoy trying to figure out what they mean. And so here with communion, there's a couple of words that uh, have similar roots that I wanted to mention, common and community. And in common, we have here common bread, common juice. There's nothing magical that's happening here this morning. This is not a, uh, a rite of passage that gets you into the super spiritual club this morning. What the common is is that we are in common need this morning, common need of restoration and redemption from an uncommon Savior. And we do it in community, and there's a couple of things about that that are of, of note, I think, and that we, we want to have uh, fellowship within our community that is unbroken. So if we have a person that the Lord brings to your mind this morning that you are out of community with, then maybe it's time to get that right. And then maybe community with the Lord. Maybe it's a broken community and fellowship with the Lord, and so this would be a time to get that right with him. So what we're going to do is we're going to pray, and then uh, we will pass the elements. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that he is the living water, the living water that flows to us and flows out of us, and it's in him alone that uh, this is possible, and it is for his own glory. In your name, amen.
reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23, 24, and 25. For I received from the Lord Jesus that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Please stand and let's sing a new song that goes hand in hand with communion. <laughs> 